Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how, he, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Article 1 of the Belgic Confession, found on page 70, uh, let's, read, let's read the words of Article 1 together, and we'll be focusing on God being simple and spiritual. We won't go through all of these tonight, but let's read Article 1 uh, together, beginning with, we all believe. Let's read this. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being which we call God, and that he is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. So as you've probably seen and and guessed and figured out. We're beginning a series on the Belgic Confession. Most often in uh, catechism preaching, of course, we we make our way through through the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a beautiful document. It's known for its its pastoral flair, its its beauty and its language, and, and the way that it oscillates really beautifully between Uh, profound doctrine and pastoral application. It's wonderful for that reason. And after it was written, it was later arranged into uh, 52 Lord's Days, of course, as we know, so that it would uh, constitute somewhat of an annual cycle of Christian doctrinal teaching. But the Belgian Confession is one of our three standards of constitution. It is our, our oldest confession that we, to which we subscribe here in the Christian Reformed Church. And so it's important for us to spend time here as well and seeing what this confession uh, would have for us. One thing we remind ourselves of is that the confession and the catechism and also the canons of Dort, all of these we believe to be faithful representations of the system of doctrine which is found in Scripture. We, of course, do not hold them to be on the same level of authority as the Bible. But the Bible needs to be explained and interpreted. Thus, in subscribing to this confession and our other standards, we are able to express what we believe and why. That's one of the main benefits that we get from learning about the confessions. We're learning what we believe and why. And I think this is... So important now as we live in a world where many people don't really want to think about what they believe and why. So as a congregation, as a church, we can uh, study this confession together and grow deeper in our understanding of what we believe and why. 
This confession, the Belgian confession, was written by Guido de Bray. If you're Italian, you might say Guido, Guido de Bray, at the time of the Spanish Inquisition. It's called the Belgic because he's writing in part of the lowlands that now would be considered probably Belgium. He wrote it in order to show the Roman Catholic government that the Reformed Christians should not be treated as heretics. They believed in the Trinity. They believed in basic Christian doctrine. And and he wrote as sort of an appeal to try and make an end to all of the oppression that the Reformed Christians were experiencing. It's one of the earliest Reformed confessions. It's probably the earliest that's still in widespread use in the Reformed churches today. Guido de Bray ended up a martyr. He was martyred for his faith. That means that this is the only confession in widespread use that was written by someone who was killed for their faith. Article 1 tells us that there is only one God. The God of Scripture is the only divine being. There is no one else. There is no other God. And what we believe about God, what we confess about God, what we think about God when he comes into our minds, that's the most important thing about us. A.W. Tozer famously said this, what, what comes to mind when we think of God, that is the most important thing about us. Utterly important for us to know what we believe and why, and what we believe about God, and thinking about his essence. But in thinking about the essence and the attributes of God, we are in deep water. We all are in over our heads when we think about God. We read in Article 1 just now, God is what? Incomprehensible. And the theologian Augustine noticed this when he wrote his very famous work entitled On the Trinity. He felt a a, a weight of, of even approaching the subject of talking about the essence and the attributes of God, talking about the Trinity. And so he says this, and I echo his thoughts before we dive in tonight. He said this, first, I pray to our Lord God himself. This is what he said before he even began. First, I pray to our Lord God himself, of whom we ought always to think, and of whom we are not able to think worthily, in praise of whom blessing is at all times to be rendered, and whom no speech is sufficient to declare that he will grant me both help for understanding and explaining that which I design, and pardon if in anything I offend. For I bear in mind not only my desire, but also my infirmity. I ask also of my readers to pardon me, where they may perceive me to have had the desire rather than the power to speak, what they either understand better themselves or fail to understand through the obscurity of my language just as I myself pardon them what they cannot understand. Augustine said, it's my desire to speak correctly of God. It's my desire that those who read my works would would think correctly of God. But I'm sinful, I'm human, I fall short. And to even approach this subject of thinking about God, talking about him, exploring his nature, there's a sense in which we feel a little bit out of place. So it's important to tread carefully with reverence, certainly a a holy curiosity about who God is and all of his attributes, and yet understanding that we can't get every single thing right and we can't 
fully comprehend God because of the fact that we are finite. So three central ideas which we saw in our text in 1 John. God is life, God is light, and God is love. God is life, God is light, and God is love. 1 John chapter 1. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And then John says, the life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Clearly here, John is speaking of the incarnation. But what he is highlighting about the incarnation is that Jesus, in coming as God and man to earth, is bringing the quality of life that can be found only in God himself. He is the source of true life, of eternal life. And he is that source of eternal life because he is a transcendent God. He is a transcendent God. God is transcendent. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah chapter 40. To whom then will you compare me, God says, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. See, the, the point is, no one. We, we can't compare God to anyone and find someone like him. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created all of these? Referring to the heavens, Right? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Isaiah chapter 40 also says this, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, And spreads them like a tent to dwell in. God is life. God is the only one who, as we will see later, has life in himself. He is transcendent. Creatures are not like their creator. God says, who will you compare me with? Who can stand next to me? No one. God is transcendent. This may seem a bit abstract, but... This is actually a very important attribute for us to recognize with a lot of practical implications for our lives. Think about how differently you would approach the circumstances that come your way if you live each and every moment acutely aware of the fact that God is transcendent. Think about how much differently we might approach our daily responsibilities, our vocation. Think about how much differently we may approach our relationships if each and every moment we live acutely aware of the fact that God is transcendent and how that works out in our lives to think of the fact that we are in a covenantal relationship with this God, that this God cares enough to speak his word to us, that this God cares enough to tell us how we are to live. The fact that God is transcendent and to see this distinction between creator and his creatures fills us with awe, but it fills us with thankfulness that God still speaks to us, that God still has worked to save us. God is transcendent. God is also independent. God is transcendent. God is 
independence. See, human beings live. All of us here in this, in this room, we are living. Human beings live, but God is life. In the Gospel of John, Jesus kept, keeps saying things that make it abundantly clear that he's claiming divinity for himself. And this is what keeps frustrating all of the religious leaders in Israel. And John sometimes gives commentary. He says, Jesus says this, comma, making himself equal with God. One of those places is John chapter 5. We read this. Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. God is the only being who has life in and of himself. He does not count on something else to have his life. He is not dependent on anything within this creation so that he might continue to exist. We derive what we have, our life, we derive that from something else. You could point to any uh, number of things. The air that we breathe, the, the food that we eat so that we're nourished, the water that we drink. Even our very existence, we see how we are, are so dependent upon things outside of ourselves. It's not so with God God has life in himself. The Apostle Paul says this in Acts 17. Therefore, you, uh, what, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God gives life out of abundance. He does not receive it back. What he gives, he gives out of his abundance. And this means that he is the supreme in everything. God is the supreme in everything. One of the ways that Christian philosophers have, have put it is that God is the being um, uh, than whom nothing greater can be conceived, right? He is the supreme in everything. His existence is perfect. There is a, a medieval pastor, theologian, who put it like this. If you have said of God that he is good, he is great, he is blessed, he is wise, or any other such quality, it is summed up in a single word, which is two words for us in English, but one word in Latin. He is. Summed up in one word, he is. God is a boundless ocean of perfection. He's the supreme in everything. We cannot conceive of a being who is greater than God. All that God is, he is by virtue of himself. All that we are, we are by virtue of something other than ourselves, right? I was born and I was raised because of my parents. Someone who's, who, who's great at piano is, knows piano because they had to be taught at some point. General, we can, people can be generally good people because of God's grace working in them or because they're being raised in a family that teaches them all those kinds of things. But all that God is, he is be, by virtue of himself. All that we are, we point to something outside of himself, outside of ourselves. So God derives all points of his character and all the perfections of his existence from no other source. God is independent. God is independent. God is transcendent. God is independent. God is also free. He is free. He is truly free. He's truly free in a way that human beings are not truly free. One of the ways in which he reveals his freedom 
to do what he will, to, to execute the pleasure of his good will, as he puts it in Scripture, is in revealing his covenantal name to Israel, his covenantal name of Yahweh. We read this in Exodus chapter 33. God says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The question might be raised in our minds, why does God reveal his name? And then he says, and I will be gracious to whomever I will. I will show compassion and mercy to whomever I will. Right on the heels of God revealing his name, he proclaims that he will show mercy and grace and compassion only where he determines. But that is showing us, really, as God looks upon the earth, looks upon rebellious human beings. He exercises his freedom in entering into a covenant with the people whom he has chosen. God is free to do that. It's not a necessity for him to do that. He did not need to do that. He did not need to call Abraham. He did not need to bring them out of Egypt and give them the land of Canaan. God did not need to do that. But he exercises his freedom in doing so. God is free. And we see his freedom in his election love. We see his freedom in his love of, the, of his covenant people and bestowing love upon them. Read in the book of Deuteronomy, God says, I love you. He's speaking to his people. I love you because I love you. Just because he has determined it to be so. God loves his people because he loves them. A New Testament fulfillment of God's covenantal name, uh, we see it in Revelation chapter 1. And it's God describing himself as the first and the last. The covenantal name of Yahweh, scholars have talked for a long time about what it specifically means. A lot of people have landed on something like you know, the name Yahweh means I am who I am or I will be who I will be or uh, something like that. It usually has to do with the existence of God. The free existence of God. And in Revelation chapter 1, we read that God is the first and the last. Revelation 1, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Right? It's the beginning and the end. Who is and who was and who is to come. I am the first and the last and the living one. And Christ says, I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. God is transcendent. God is independent. God is free. If God were not free from creation, we think back, you know, just over the past several weeks, for instance, here's a practical application of the, the absolute freedom of God. We've been thinking about prayer in the Heidelberg Catechism. And if God were not free, if God were not free from creation, we could perhaps pray for him, but we could not pray to him. We would have no reason to hope that God could deliver us from evil or death, for nature would be more sovereign than he is. The forces of nature would overpower him. But God is free from his creation, not dependent upon it, yet freely chooses to create it, freely chose to create it, freely has chosen to involve himself in the lives of his creatures. God is life, transcendent, independent, free. God is also light. God is light. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and in him 
there is no darkness at all. So the Belgic Confession talks about God being simple. Simple. Uh, that sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? Because it almost sounds like, uh, like an insult, right? Someone might say to someone else, well, uh, he, he's very simple, meaning that there isn't, there, you know, not complex thoughts in his, in his mind. Whereas human beings are called complex. So uh, what's, the, what's the Belgic Confession getting at here? Well, this is a, a long conversation that's been going on in theology for a very long time. And it has nothing to do with God's mental capacity being less than anyone else's, right? When we say that God is simple, we simply mean that God is not made up of parts. God is not composed of parts. Human beings are made up of parts. They're complex. They're, they're, they're compound creatures. They have a body. They have a soul. They have various attributes that can be present in varying degrees. But God is not made of, uh, up of parts. And all of his attributes are just revelations of who he is. And he perfectly possesses all of his attributes simultaneously. He is always all that, all, that his attributes reveal. We don't say about God that he is good and loving and righteous and just and then we sort of add all of those things together and then once you add all of those things together then that's our idea of God. God is not the sum total of his attributes and we also can't reduce the attributes of God so that they're equal with one another. We'll talk about that in just a few moments but God is simple simultaneously all that his attributes reveal. God is also pure. God is pure. God is whatever he has. In the essence of God, there is nothing but pure perfection. In other words, there's no potential. God does not potentially know something. God is not potentially able to do something. I might say that I could potentially speak French if I had the determination to learn it. If I had enough time to practice and the the determination to stick with it, I could potentially speak French. There's nothing you could say about God that he potentially has. Everything that he has is not potential, it is actual. This may be confusing because God's works are manifold. He has many different kinds of works that reveal different aspects of who he is. We look at the various works of God and we say, here God is loving, here God is merciful, here God is just, and his works come to us in varied forms like that. But that just reveals that Our minds are finite and we can't fully grasp all at once everything that God is. We are finite and God is infinite. You could think about it like a photographer in a helicopter circling a mountain. And no matter what angle he is looking at the mountain, he's never going to get one picture that fully captures every side, every angle of that mountain and every detail. He can go around and around and around and keep taking a composite of many different pictures. But he's never going to get it all uh, from one angle. God is simple, but his works are manifold. And his works reveal various parts of his character, all of which are always present and simultaneously uh, present in his essence. We read in this uh, passage of 1 John that God is light. Note that John does not say God is filled with light, right? He does not say he, he is bright, which would be the adjective of something that uh, possesses a substantial amount of light, but rather that God 
is light. In other words, it's always true at every moment that God is light. If it ever were more or less true, then it would mean God is changing. And we know that God does not change. Malachi 3, verse 6, I am the Lord, therefore I do not change. I am God. God does not change. So God is light. What John means by that, that God never changes. God is light. The very idea of God is that he is one than whom nothing higher can ever be thought. If we can conceive of a being that is higher, greater, more powerful than our idea of God, then the fault lies with our idea of him. Our idea of him is not sufficient. See, I would still be human if I lacked wisdom, which I do, if, if I lacked uh, gratitude, which I do, if I lacked generosity, which I do. See, I, I'm lacking in all three of those things, but I'm still a human being, right? But God would not be God if he did not possess all that he is in perfection. Another thing to notice, not only does John not say that God is filled with light, he also does not say God is his light, Right? He doesn't reduce God and God's essence to light. He does not say God is his light because that would equate God with this light, this characteristic, this attribute of light. We do not say something like God is his justice as if the fullness of what God can be known, of how God can be known, is identical with justice. Because if he is identical with his justice and he is identical with his light, then his light and his justice become the same thing. And we reduce the attributes of God and flatten them all out so that they mean nothing. So all of God's attributes are not identical. This would force us to say things that are incoherent. It would force us to say things like mercy is justice. And we know that mercy is not justice. Such a thing would be incoherent. And God is not incoherent. This is a mystery. There's mystery to this. So historically, if you go through the greatest thinkers in the church, they'll be musing on these things and, and spilling pages of ink over it. And, but the, the best of them will always get to this point where they will say, there's a sense in which this is, of course, incomprehensible. And you butt up to mystery and you, you say, we confess and we profess what the Bible reveals about God and we hold to it in faith and we understand that there's tension because a finite mind is never going to be able to fully grasp and comprehend the infinite. How could it? How could it? So there is mystery that is bound up with this. Psalm 145 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. What we might say is that there's a unity of God that, that goes underneath all of what we say about him as we, as we speak about him in faith. As most of you know, I'm kind of a, a coffee nerd. I, I get my chemistry set out every morning and I have a little scale and, and a beaker thing and I, you know, it's kind of a little hobby that I have. I take great joy in it, so please don't make fun of me for it. When uh, I taste really good coffee, uh, I... You pay attention to all of the, the notes that are in coffee, right? You might taste cherry or uh, walnut or chocolate or caramel. You might taste an earthy. There's sometimes an earthy, grassy kind of plant flavor to it. 
And some of these flavors may be intention, but oftentimes, you know, people can go on and on and on. You know, people do the same thing with, with food and drink, all the kinds of notes that they're getting with something. And they go on and on and on describing it because they know they need to describe it further. You do the same thing with people, right? You, you look at a person, and you, someone that you might greatly respect, and you will say, she is good and merciful and loving. See, there's something inside of you. There's this unity to who this person is, but yet you need to describe her in manifold ways. It's not sufficient for you to say she is good. You have to say she is good and she is merciful and she is loving. One of these adjectives seem is, is insufficient, but each adjective appeals to an underlying unity of her person, and that's what happens with God. There's an underlying unity that we hold to in faith. And his manifold works reveal many different things about who he is. And we understand at the same time that the finite will not be able to perfectly grasp the infinite. God is life, God is light, and God is love. 1 John 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God is perfect in his existence. He is simultaneously everything that his attributes reveal. We cannot reduce uh, his attributes to equal um, all of the other attributes. One, One other thing that we must know is that God is a unity. God is unified. In other words, God is never conflicted. You ever feel conflicted? God is never conflicted. God's attributes cannot be pitted against one another. Oftentimes people will try to do this. How do you reconcile the justice of God and the love of God? Or the justice of God, the righteousness of God, and the mercy of God? We can never pit the attributes of God against one another. God is love even when he judges. God is righteous even when he shows mercy. If God ever would have been conflicted, when would that have been? The cross, right? If God ever would have been conflicted, it would have been at the cross. But at the cross, we do not see God conflicted. In fact, it's just the opposite. At the cross, we see a perfect unity of purpose and a perfectly executed plan of redemption that had been laid before the foundations of the earth were created before anything had come into existence. And the decree of God, the cross, was there. At the cross, justice and mercy, wrath and love, embrace. We read in the New Testament that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, which shows us that there's a unity to the execution of what God was doing. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. All that Christ had to undergo, God was doing something. He was reconciling the world to himself. We read elsewhere that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, God is just, perfectly just, and yet he looks upon sinners and he declares them to be righteous. You cannot pit the attributes of God against one another. Justice and mercy, wrath and love, they do not come into conflict at the cross. They are in perfect harmony at the cross because God is never conflicted. So 
So God as transcendent, independent, free, this is the God that we confess and we profess. Just as we close this evening, we're filled with gratitude when we think of this God, struck with awe when we worship him and profess him. Why? Because he exercises his freedom for us. See, he is free from his creation. And yet, in the good pleasure of his will, he, does, he chooses to, be, to use his freedom for, his freedom for his people. A husband might be asked by his wife, Darling, why, why did you marry me? And it's at these moments that a husband needs to tread carefully, right? It would not be wise for the husband to say, I married you because I had to, right? That probably wouldn't go over very well. But if the husband said, I married you because I wanted to marry you, because I, could, I, I couldn't have thought of marrying anyone else in the whole world, so I came after you, I found you, I sought you out. I took you with me and I said, I'm making you, I'm making you my wife. I'm going to do what it takes. I want to marry you. I wanted to marry you. God, free from creation, didn't, didn't need anything in creation to feel better about himself or become more godlike or, or holier, more righteous, or anything like that. God needed none of that. And yet he freely chose to come and to join himself in covenant to his people. God created a world that he did not need, right? He, even before the world was created, perfect fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly enjoying the life that the Father, Son, and Spirit had in the Godhead itself. But God creates a world he does not need to enter a covenant with creatures who did not deserve it in order to give life to those who earned death. This is our transcendent, independent God who freely chooses to exercise his freedom for us because he sought us out and because he loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these deep truths. We tread carefully and we know that we would desire to to speak well and right of you. So empower us to do so. And Father, allow our thoughts of you to be in accord with what you have revealed in your word. Help us to trust your word and to give you all the glory as we live our lives. Empower us to live in gratitude and obedience and reverence in awe of you, the holy God, who uh, for us men and for our salvation, Father, you sent your son uh, to come and to live and to die to be raised again uh, for us. We pray all these things, trusting in him and in his name. Amen.